Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome. CC. Hello and welcome. One, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 17, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. I know that I'm eager to be back here. While the break was needed and I was able to catch up on a few things before the end of the year, it definitely felt pretty weird being away from the show for so long. I'm not sure I very much liked it. I think it gave me a little too much time away. In fact, I'll let you in on a little secret. I don't do so well with any kind of inactivity. Never have. I mean, the last month has been very active. Don't get me wrong. There's actually been way too much going on. I shot in five different cities the past two weeks. Steph and I completed and screened our short film. The holidays happened. The family's in the midst of a massive relocation. Steph and the kids have already gone. I'll join them in a few months' time. So there's been a lot going on in my life. So I'm specifically talking more about inactivity with the show, with the documentary life. Not writing on it. Not contacting potential guests not recording shows, not really releasing much of anything. That definitely messed with me a little bit. I think I got a little into my head about it, to be honest with you. Started wondering if I'd have any listeners when I came back on, if people hadn't fully realized, you know, after the last show, I was taking a break until the new year. I even started wondering if I had anything much left to say, if I really was much of a service to anyone, or if I was just talk, talk, talking without really saying much and that finally people had caught on to my game, seen through the facade, and were now bailing in great numbers. I'd even started panicking about coming up with topics to discuss, or that I wouldn't be able to continue bringing on, you know, informative, helpful, exciting guests like I'd been able to do in 2016, or at least I'd like to think that I'd been able to do in 2016. But then I did what I've learned to do over the years whenever I'm starting to have doubts about myself or about my work. I sit down and just start writing out some thoughts. Or if I've been procrastinating doing editing on a project, I'll just sit down, open up the project file, and start sifting through footage to get a feel you know, for what I have. And while at first it may take a little bit to get back into the swing of things, inevitably I'm able to start you know, to find my groove again. I have really, really high hopes for this show in 2017, but I don't want to let that give me anxieties or fears. I want to just keep doing what I'm doing, hopefully getting better each time that I do it, And I have to believe that things will work out as they're meant to work out. However that looks, I can't say with 100% certainty, of course, but I do know this. I love doing this show. Somebody's out there listening to it because the download numbers continue to grow exponentially. And well, you know, I'm just going to keep doing what I love, which is to say I'm going to keep providing you inspirational, educational, and practical content to help all of us live and lead documentary lives. And together, we're all going to continue doing what we've been doing all along since day one of the show, which is to build a supportive and connective community of people living out their passion, documentary film. Today's topic will be about finding ways to continue working with people who we may no longer want to be working with, or how to see projects through that we may no longer want to be working on. 
I think that it's going to be the kind of show that many of us doc filmmakers and artists alike will have had some, if not plenty, of experience with, so there should be plenty to sink our teeth into. But before we do that, I'd like to take a moment and read an email that I received a couple of weeks back. It's a good one that is appropriate for any and all documentary filmmakers who are looking to make a film that can be exhibited publicly. It comes from a Brandon who's based out of Los Angeles. He's a commercial and music video producer who's trying his hand at documentary. I'm going to read directly from his email. Hi, Chris. Thanks for your time and your hard work with your podcast. Just found it recently. I am from Portland, Oregon originally, but I've lived in L.A. for 10 years, minus three in Israel. I just got involved with the artist of my last music video requesting that we produce her documentary. All very last minute, thrown in the fire kind of deal. She's one of the most famous, if not the most famous musicians in her homeland in Israel. The story is cool. I'm excited about it. But the catch is I've never produced a doc. My director has, and I'm comfortable with the whole thing. I know I can pull it off, which is why they asked me to do it. My main questions for you, or if you don't know the answers, maybe you can point me in the right direction. One, do I need to get releases from everyone that that are in the shots that are filmed? I mean, because there are so many people in some of our early footage already at her shows who there's no way I'm going to be able to wrangle all of these releases, but I don't want to blow their faces. But at what point am I just filming my talent, and if they come into the shot, it's on them? Anyways, I'd love more info on that somewhere. Two, filming locations and permits. If my artist is playing at a venue or she's in a restaurant or wherever, when do I need to get permission from the venue to not only have it in our final film, but to film in general? Like if she's walking on the street, I am permitted technically to film her with my limited crew without permits, correct? Limited crew being one producer, one camera op, and a sound guy. And then finally, these technical things are something I don't want to hold me up come distribution time. And I want to make sure I'm doing properly from the get-go. So any info is so helpful and much appreciated. First off, thank you so much for the email, Brandon. These are fantastic questions that deal with free use, copyright, location and personnel releases, etc. And these are the questions that should be thought of and researched early on in a project, lest you end up with a, you know, like you mentioned, a distribution nightmare later on down the road when you're trying to get that distribution and are refused even a cursory look at your film because you don't have the proper releases. So what I'll do here is I'll read directly my reply to Brandon. Number one, the way that I've understood docs to be these days, if someone happens to meander into your frame, that is on them. You would not necessarily require a release. Furthermore, I have often heard that if someone is talking directly to camera, that can function as the release. In essence, if they are speaking on camera, they are giving the filmmaker the okay to use the footage. Now, a safe bet for you from here on out would be to simply make sure that anyone that you interview simply gives a verbal okay on camera that you can use the footage. This should suffice. Of course, to be super safe, though to my understanding, not absolutely necessary, you can always have people sign release forms. Some distribution may indeed ask for such a thing, but as far as incidental shots that people happen to be in, you should not have to blur the image. Two, and this is regarding filming locations. Any public area is a go, so wherever you film in these areas, you should have nothing to worry about. However, if she is at a private location, you should probably get a release. I have filmed at concert venues and simply gotten email OKs to film there. And three, you are 100% spot on to be questioning these sorts of things, especially for when it comes time for distribution. So good on you for getting ahead of this, Brandon. A reference that you might want to check out is regarding fair use. This has been monumental for doc filmmakers for the past decade. It basically OKs the use of a lot of copyrighted material that can often happen incidentally while filming. And 
and I'll give the address here for, for you, my listeners, and it's www.gcglaw.com. And go into the resources and entertainment section, specifically you're looking for fair use. Fair use is absolutely a huge subject for us doc lifers, and your email really stresses to me the need for discussion of such a thing on the show. So thank you for that. Look for a doc industry guest to be on the show talking about this in the future. As I mentioned earlier, these are some extremely pertinent subjects that we all should become very familiar with, and sooner than later, hopefully. And to be honest, I am by no means any sort of expert on the matter. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just a documentary filmmaker over here like yourselves who really only has a cursory knowledge on the subject of something like fair use. So that being said, I think that this would make for some very interesting and important content for a future show. I'm thinking that I might reach out to someone in the entertainment law industry to have as a guest here on TDL. Wouldn't that be great to hear directly from a professional who can guide us through an otherwise fairly murky territory that, you know, quite frankly, needs to be a hell of a lot less murky. So, Brandon, thank you for not only listening to the show, but for also putting a fire under my butt to get someone on the show who can speak with more authority on this very important subject. If you would like to send me a question or make a comment on a prior show or maybe offer a suggestion for a future topic or guest, you can always email me at chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris, C-H-R-I-S, at barongfilms.com, B-A-R-A-N-G, films.com. Okay, moving on to the main topic of today's program. I hope that I didn't take too long on that. I know that I have at least one listener who does not like for me to take so long with the email segment of the show. So, Mike... Wherever you are, you know that I love you, and I hope that you're still listening. Have you ever been working on a doc film for a while? Maybe it's your own film or it's a collaborative project, and at some point, for whatever the reason, maybe a major disagreement about the film's content, or you don't like how a person is or isn't doing their job. But at some point, you realize that maybe a person or persons that you've been working with are really bringing you down, even to the point that you're thinking of leaving the project. Now, I'm going to tell you why this may be more of an issue with the docs than, say, feature films or commercials or corporate video gigs. If you're working on a paid gig, it's much less painful and easier to deal with. Why? Because you're usually on for a fixed number of days, whereby once those days are done, you make your money, you move on, and you have a choice later on whether or not to work with that person again. But with docs, it's not as much like that. It can be a bit trickier because, for one, we're often either working for much lower day rates or we may be working entirely for free. The documentary film project, by nature, is inherently a passion project, or at least for some of the party it is. And so when not everyone is feeling the passion, well, it can make things pretty, shall we say, challenging. About 13 years ago, I was brought on to a documentary film project called Bomb Hunters, which not only introduced me to the genre of documentary, but it also would be my entrance into a part of the world that has since become instrumental as a backdrop to much of my storytelling, Southeast Asia, in this case, Cambodia. I was brought on as a hired hand, but let's definitely use the term hired hand quite loosely. I was making $450 a month plus room and board. Now that didn't include my meals, which usually ran to about 300 bucks a month in Cambodia at the time. At the end of the day, I was netting, you know, around $150. Not exactly bringing home the bacon, eh? But of course, this kind of endeavor was never about the money, was it? It was about the opportunity to experience six months in a far-off land working on a documentary film in a culture I knew next to nothing about. I probably would have done this film for free. Okay, I guess that I was kind of doing it for free, but you get what I'm saying. I was brought on as part of a two-man team, not including our fixer translator. 
I would be responsible for all of the sound, and let's call him Scott. Scott would be responsible for all of the video. But as you can imagine, we both were wearing many and all hats, depending on the place or situation. Scott was the director DP and therefore called all the shots, but this was very much a collaborative effort, especially since he would later on hire me to be the editor of the film. Now before I go any further on the subject, I want to say up front that I owe a lot to this filmmaker. He gave me my first real opportunity and introduced me to a part of the world I'd only dreamed of maybe one day visiting. To say that I learned a lot about documentary filmmaking from Scott would be a vast understatement, and I'll always have gratitude for this. But it wasn't easy. To put it bluntly, he could be a difficult man to work for, with, whatever. Before I left, other mutual friends and colleagues took me aside and asked me if I was sure that I wanted to go away for six months and work and live with this person. That he was pretty notorious for burning any and all bridges with people he'd ever worked with. But I insisted that I could handle it. That the opportunity experience far outweighed any challenges or frustrations that I might be faced with. And in the end, that was still the case. But man, oh man, was that a hell of a six months of my life. Of his life as well, I'm sure. In all of our defense, and to be fair, we were around each other 24-7, six days a week. So not only were we up at 6 a.m. and working to sundown, which in Cambodia was around 7 p.m., but we also ate all of our meals and shared rooms with one another. So just about anyone would have some bumps along the road during this time, right? I mean, we're only human, and that's natural that people would get on one another's nerves from time to time. But I have to say that to this day, working with him on that particular film was one of the greatest challenges of my life. There were many occasions where I honestly considered walking away from it all, just getting on the next flight back to the States and calling it good on the whole thing. And, you know, even now looking back, I'm not really sure what kept me from doing just that. Was it stubbornness, fear of coming back home, not having completed the work, or facing my friends and colleagues who would, you know, of course, earlier warned me about working with him? I wonder if it doesn't feel like someone who's going through a military boot camp, where every moment of every day is a big mind bender that just constantly is pushing you to the brink of all kinds of limits. But for whatever reason, you choose to keep moving forward, taking it all in and just, well, just persevering. Because now looking back, I truly believe that I am a better person for having had that experience of working on that film. I know that I learned an immense amount from it. I'm not just talking in the filmmaking sense either, of course. I'm talking about in the life sense. I'm talking about how one works with his or her crew, or how one works within another culture, works with people from another culture. Yeah, I learned a ton in that one. And ultimately, I'm proud of what Scott and I did with that film, with Bomb Hunters. You should check it out sometime. You can stream it on Amazon Video. Now, while I wouldn't necessarily recommend anyone quite going through what I did, I can say that sometimes in life, it's the perseverance and the challenge that really is, you know, what propels us forward in not only, in not only our growth as an artist, but as a human being. So with that all being said, I've got a few pointers that I think might benefit you should you find yourself in some kind of similar situations or working with similar people. Number one. Keep your eye on the big picture. As a documentary director does when conducting interviews or playing with storylines, or an editor does when he or she is assembling the pieces of the edit together, you must continue to look at the big picture when faced with adversity, whether it be from a specific instance or from dealing with another person. That's what I did on Bomb Hunters often. I kept telling myself to look at the bigger things going on around me. That me working on this film was about so much more than... Well, me, getting to work on a documentary film. 
I believed in our story and I wanted other people to know about the story. So for me, there was a couple of ways I could directly affect that. One was to immerse myself in the project completely in a way that allowed me to become personally involved in a way that allowed me to overlook the negative things going on around me, which by the way, also includes the content that we were filming. People attempting to disassemble 300 kilogram bombs left over from war by hand in order to sell the metal and TNT. Two, I knew that if I worked my butt off and found some way to show the director that he should keep me on as the editor of the film, which of course was the other big picture draw for me, even though I'd never edited documentary film before, I'd have the best chance in really having an impact on how the story got told. As a side note here, and please, please, please do not think that I am patting myself on the back here. Okay, maybe I am just a little bit, but how I got hired on as the editor in the first place is kind of appropriate to this idea of keeping your eye on the big picture. During Christmas of 2004, we were to get five days off for a break on the film, the only such break we'd get the entire six months of filming, incidentally. I had been toying with the idea of flying over to Phuket in Thailand and spending a week decompressing on a hot and sunny beach with cocktails in hand. But then, the week before the break, I changed my mind and decided on a different course of action. I would instead hold myself up in a guest house room in Phnom Penh, the Cambodian capital, and put together a five-minute sort of preview of the film that we'd done to date. I'm not even sure, looking back, if I told Scott that I would be doing this. I think that I wanted to surprise him. Anyhow, my sole intent and purpose was to make the most amazing trailer that I could, show it to him, and effectively plant the seed in his mind that I could be his editor for the film. That, regardless of my inexperience in editing a featured documentary film, I more than made up for it in my intimate knowledge of the footage. I'd been on every single shoot and had worked worked with our translator to translate and transcribe all the footage, as well as my ability to tell a coherent and creative story. Make a long story short, it worked. The resulting trailer, really almost a film short, would be used over the course of the next half year to obtain various grants, including a State Department grant, as well as a slot in the Sundance Documentary Workshop. And the hard work that I put into the edit, and then most certainly the hard work that I continued to exhibit throughout the remaining three months of shooting, the persistence and passion that I showed throughout, got me hired on as the editor of the film afterwards. Okay, maybe I was super cheap too, but let's not talk about that. And not to end this section on a downer, but it should be noted that if I'd opted to go on the Phuket trip instead of staying in Cambodia, well, I may not be here talking to you today. You may remember that was the year of the devastating tsunami that wiped out parts of Southeast Asia, including, of course, all of Phuket. I'm sure thankful that I made the choice that I did, and of course, that's for a few different reasons. But persistence in keeping my eye on the big picture was what got me through the toughest times of that shoot. Over the last few years, as we've met and connected with more and more doc lifers, we've been asked what the most comprehensive doc filmmaking course out there is. The truth is, we didn't believe there was one. There are plenty of videos and some courses that walk you through some technical aspects of filmmaking and workshops that cover some of the business aspects, but there was nothing that specifically took the doc filmmaker through the whole actual doc filmmaking journey, both creative and business, from A to Z. That is, until we created one. 
The Documentary Academy is the only all-in-one online documentary film production course that actually starts from the beginning of your film's journey, from story conception, through pre-production and actual production, to post-production, and through to the promotions, marketing, and distribution of your film. The Academy will help you make your most successful documentary film by guiding you on the journey from conception to launch. But don't just take our word for it. Have a look for yourself by going to thedocumentarylife.com academy and discover everything that the Academy has to offer, including a video that takes you inside the Academy for a look around. The Documentary Academy has already greatly helped others realize their power and potential as doc filmmakers. Why not be the next person who brings an awesome documentary film to life? Head on over to thedocumentarylife.com academy today, and we'll see you there. Number two, the second tip that I can give that might benefit you should you find yourself you know, having to work through situations that you don't want to be involved in or working with a person that you don't want to be working with any longer. Number two is recognize it's all about learning the lessons. Now, as cliche as that may sound, it's true, or at least it sure is in my life. I can take just about any bad or negative thing that's ever happened in my life, even the really profound ones, and I can find something positive out of it. I can find the lesson that is within which really at the end of the day is what matters most, that you learn something from the negative experience. And hopefully later on, you'll remember to apply your lessons the next time something similar presents itself, which by the way is part of the problem with me because my memory has often been known to, um, let's just say, let me down. I run the risk of repeating mistakes, which is just awful, especially the third or fourth time. But let's not get into that. This is about positivity and seeing all of your mistakes and bad experiences as a doc filmmaker and turning them into something positive. I learned a pretty valuable lesson very recently that I can share with you. Just before the holidays, Steph and I finished up on a short film doc called Fumi's Floral Shop about a 93-year-old Japanese-American woman who, along with a total of five generations of Japanese-Americans, have run a local Portland floral shop. The story included the hardships endured along the way, being put into internment camps during World War II, having the shop burned down, just to name a couple, and how Fumi and her family overcame all of them and soldiered on in the face of heartache and, and these hardships. Sounds like a fairly interesting story, right? Right. On paper. In practice, it was a whole other ballgame. First off, we were only ever mildly successful filming an interview with the star of our show. It's not easy conducting an interview with a 93-year-old woman, especially when she won't even let you put a microphone on her. And trying to explain that it's important to answer questions by using the question within, within the answer was downright impossible. So I would get a lot of yeses and noes as answers to my oh-so-deep and meaningful questions. My wife and I were also challenged throughout the entire filming process when we discovered that for every request that we had, whether it be for, say, family photos or setting up a time to interview someone or if it would be okay to come in and film B-roll of the shop, basically every single interaction we quickly learned had to go through one particular person. In essence, for whatever the reasons behind certain family politics, all requests had to go through this person. And this person was clearly accustomed to controlling anything and everything that went on around her. As you can imagine, that can make making a film not very fun. Especially when you're trying to make a positive film with a positive message about this person's family. 
Now, normally we would have discovered this pretty early on and then been able to make a decision on whether or not to continue on with this personal project. Then again, normally one wouldn't apply and then receive a grant to do a project that they'd not even started, which of course is exactly what we did. I'd received a grant from this particular entity for two years running. They were happy with my ability to fulfill all grant requirements with my projects, and they liked the projects themselves. And so when the deadline came up to apply for a new grant, well, I just figured I'd apply and come up with some idea on the spot, which I basically did that week. And then if we were awarded the grant, well, we'd make the film. So you can see where I'm already headed with this. We were pretty stuck. We had to see this film project through, lest we not fulfill our obligation to the granting organization and therefore be blacklisted later on for you know from future applications. So the end result of all of this is that, yes, of course, we have a short film. It's not one that either Steph or I are particularly proud of. This could have been a really good film if things had worked out differently, if the family had been more cooperative with getting us family photo archival material, or if the main subject's interviews had been better, or, you know, if we'd been giving more, given more freedom and access. Nevertheless, there is a film out there. We had a public screening. People came out. People, including the family, seemed to like the film. We will most likely not be showcasing this film on the Barong Films website. Heck, we didn't even invite our own friends to the screening party. But there are valuable lessons that I have taken from this experience. Easily, the most valuable lesson for me was one that I ironically should have learned a long time ago, but apparently, for whatever reason, didn't. And that is this. Spend time, quality time, with your potential documentary subjects. Find out how they read on camera. Find out if they can give engaging interviews. Find out if they're people that you want to spend the next year of your life or however long working with. Basically, do some preliminary meetings and hopefully even filming before delving headlong into any project. And please, whatever you do, make sure not to apply for any grants till you absolutely know for sure that it's a project you're going to be okay working on. Moving on to number three, which I like to call Know When to Cut Bait. Now, I've given you two pretty strong examples where I had some very legitimate reasons to maybe stop working with someone on a film or maybe to shut down a project after it's already begun. But let's face it, this will never always work. There will be a time when you're faced with such adversity that really the only good answer is to get out. Or in my case, to let a person go who wasn't working out as the producer of my film. In 2009, I began filming on Journey to Kathmandu, a film about the once-in-a-lifetime journey that goats make from their farming lives in Tibet to their sacrificial deaths in Kathmandu, Nepal, at the height of the all-important annual Nepalese holiday known as Dasai. But I had actually planned on filming during the festival in 2008. But what I hadn't planned on was having very little budget or having no producer for the film because I'd let the producer go one month before the intended date to go to Nepal. But as we've already learned in today's podcast, things happen in filmmaking for a reason. And it's about what one does with the adversity, with the journey, if you will, that matters in the end. I had spent six months in pre-production alongside my producer who I brought on the project. Let's call her Kristen. We'd put together a couple of mildly successful fundraisers. We'd plan the trip in its entirety. We'd worked with legal counsel to form our company for the film. We'd talked wild and crazy dreams that we had for the film, done all kinds of manifesting on these dreams, but things just never seemed to come through. Whether it was a last-minute pullout by a potential private funder, which happened a few too many times, some personality differences, or the nagging feeling that my producer, understandably so by the way, didn't have the connection to this story about goats and their herders' journey in Nepal that I did. 
Whatever the reasons, a month from needing to go and film the annual trucking festival, we pushed the project to a year out. And as a result, I'd end up asking her to leave the project. Basically, after deciding to push the shoot a year, I took the weekend off with some family and friends, did a bit of soul searching, and came back to the project knowing that in order for this film to see the light of day, it was going to have to be without Kristen. Now, it's never fun having to sit down and have that conversation of telling the person that it's just not working out. It isn't in working relationships, it isn't in personal relationships, and it isn't in film team relationships. There are always, at the very least, some hurt feelings, if not downright anger or, God forbid, some sort of threat of a lawsuit. Hopefully, it doesn't get to that point, of course. And eventually, through the course of time, all parties involved come to realize that it was ultimately the right thing to do, not only for the project, but for the well-being of all involved parties. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Well, Chris, you've basically just detailed three different experiences that you found very challenging and that you had to find your way through, and that seemingly these challenges came from external sources completely out of your control. And these external sources just so happened to be other people. Gee, Chris, I wonder if maybe you were a part of the problem. Well, first off, don't be silly. Of course I'm not the problem. That would be preposterous. Kidding. Yes, of course, I'm sure that I played my part, and I'm sure that it wasn't wholly insignificant, but that's kind of beside the point. Like any narrator of any novel who I was always taught in literature class, you would do well to remember that one should never completely trust the narrator, because it is, after all, only their version of the story. And so, yes, I am the narrator of these accounts, and you should have some healthy skepticism. And, and, and while you can be open-minded or skeptical about the versions of my accounts, I will say that the points really are still the same points. It's always good to, one, keep your eye on the big picture. Two, recognize that your filmmaking experiences, even if not especially the negative ones, are all about seeing the lessons that are there for the learning. And three, knowing when to say enough is enough to cut the proverbial bait. So that's all I've got for today's program. If you've got any thoughts on the show, or maybe you'd like to share a story or two about how you were able to overcome working with a difficult person or a situation on a project, you can always email me at chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris at B-A-R-A-N-G films.com. I always love to hear from my listeners. And as anyone who's ever contacted me will attest, I will always respond to your emails. Remember, we have a community of documentary filmmakers here that we began building last year. So let's continue to make it an even more supportive and fun group of Doc Lifers in 2017. And I do mean hashtag Doc Lifers whenever I say Doc Lifers, by the way. And speaking of hashtags, I should tell you about some of TDL's social media outlets you might be interested in being a part of. You can and you should follow the documentary life on Twitter by going to at mydoclife. I'm fairly active with this particular bit of social media because I like the concise and immediate nature of tweets. So if you are a Twitter person, check me out at MyDocLife. If you're more of a visual person, then maybe Instagram is, is more your speed. We're at the underscore documentary underscore life. I like to think of this as my visual representation of my own doc life, alongside my actual films, of course. So there are the requisite family photos, pictures of my commercial and corporate video gigs, shots of locations for my doc projects, and occasionally pictures of records, vinyl records, that I might currently be listening to. Again, the Instagram account is the underscore documentary underscore life. I'll also mention that you can go to our website if you'd like to check out any of the old past shows or if you might like to read the bi-weekly blog. Simply go to www.thedocumentarylife.com. 
If you listen to the last TDL episode of 2016, you'll remember that I mentioned that I'd be spending more consistent time with the blog, where I'll be posting more documentary filmmaking content. My aim is to publish on the off weeks that I'm not running a new TDL episode. So start checking out the blog. Again, the website address, www.thedocumentarylife.com. If you're interested in viewing my Nepal documentary, Journey to Kathmandu, you can go to journeytokathmandu.com. In conjunction with this show, I'm going to be running a special for the first 20 people. For nearly half off the regular $8.99 price, you can download the Journey to Kathmandu Deluxe Directors and Goats Edition, which is to say the film along with a ton of extras. Every great journey comes with a sacrifice. Watch as goats make their once-in-a-lifetime trek from their farmland lives in Tibet to their sacrificial deaths in Kathmandu during the Nepalese Dasai Festival. Purchase of the Deluxe Directors and Goats Edition comes loaded with behind-the-scenes footage, director's commentary, shorts, and deleted scenes. Regardless if you're simply looking for more info on the making of Journey to Kathmandu, or you're a budding independent filmmaker, or just a fan of goats, this is a must-have for anyone who enjoys gaining insight into what goes into the making of an independent documentary in a developing country. Again, for a limited time, I'm offering to the first 20 listeners a chance to have all of this for only $4.99. Again, that's nearly half off the everyday price. All you have to do is go to journeytokathmandu.com. Once there, go to make your purchase of the Journey to Kathmandu Deluxe Directors and Goats Edition, and upon checkout, use the following discount code, MYDOCLIFE. And that's all together as one word, MYDOCLIFE. Again, go to journeytokathmandu.com, and upon checkout, use the discount code MYDOCLIFE. I'll also post a direct link with this information in the show notes that can be found on the Documentary Life website. Lastly, before going, I'd like to mention our guest for the next podcast. His name is Joel Ben-Izzy. He's the author of the best-selling The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness, a true story. And he's a professional storyteller. Now I know what you're thinking. Everyone's a storyteller these days. In fact, so much so that its meaning is kind of getting watered down. If you don't already know who Joel Ben-Izzy is, then let me just say that he is a storyteller with a capital S, as in an old school gets up on the stage, bar to the town, professional makes his living telling stories kind of storyteller. And he's been so gracious to agree to be on the show. I met him a few months back on a corporate video gig that I was doing in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. He did a few presentations at the annual Let's Talk Coffee conference held by Sustainable Harvest, and I was very affected by not only the things this man had to say, but also the way in which he said them. There's a lot to learn about the stories of life from this man, and there's a lot to learn about the craft of storytelling. And I think it's going to be a great first Doc Industry guest conversation for 2017. And so with that, I shall take my leave and wish everyone a great start to their new year, and I'll see you in two weeks. Cheers. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.